Hello and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm your host, Peggy Hughes, and on this episode, we talk to Wigtown favourite Shoe Rayner, YouTube star, author and illustrator, and to the editors of a new literary magazine which places illustration at its heart. Shoe Rayner is a children's author and illustrator who runs two successful YouTube channels about drawing. It'll be a very familiar face to those of you who have been lucky enough to visit the, the Wigtown Book Festival. And he was behind um, the marvellous Wigtown sketchbook a few years back. So if you spotted someone thoughtfully doodling away at the back of an event, that was most likely Shoe. So we decided to catch up with Shoe and see what he's been drawing during lockdown. What's your current view, Shu? My current view, I'm in my shed at the bottom of the garden. My, what is, yeah, I call it my studio. My current view is I'm pointing into the corner of the room. I got this funny little picture of Hello Kitty, and she's in this beautiful Japanese <laughs> outfit, which I got in Tokyo. And then I have two windows on either side. One window looks into the garden towards the house, and the other window looks out into the pond that I made, especially so that I could look at pond stuff. But that window is now completely full of cameras and microphones and stuff like that for recording things. So I have to kind of look around them to be able to see my pond. I want to take you right back, really, to you, little you, if I may. When did you begin to draw? I mean, little me, I was very like my son. He was the same. And every day at half past three or whenever it was, Mrs. Dale's diary came on the radio. My mum would make tea and she would settle down to listen to Mrs. Dale's diary, which was like a, a soap opera on the radio. And I would grab a piece of paper out of my dad's desk, which was green. And it had the crown on the top because he nicked it from work. He was, a, he was an army officer. And I would just draw. And I would always say, what can I draw, mum? And she'd always say, draw a boat, dear. And I'd say, no. I don't want to do that and I'd draw something else. Who or what in your life? I mean, I'm interested in illustrations you remember from when you were a little boy, you know, the kind of the illustrators that got you started on that path. I don't think I ever really twigged that there were illustrators actually doing that until I got to art college when I was about 24. But looking back, then I can see Noddy was my first big love that I remember. And then I was mad about a, a series called Blackberry Farm, Enid Blyton's. I used to love the, the adventure series. And then Narnia, you know, I just loved those illustrations. I, I just, I wanted to be Prince Caspian when I grew up. I find this um, fascinating because, I, you know, I, I can't really draw. And I wonder what were the qualities in those illustrations illustrations in those books that drew you to them specifically? I don't know. I mean, I think also Rupert Bear. Rupert Bear was a big influence, I think. And it, it's something I kind of realised later, in fact, when I started illustrating and I had a wonderful editor called Fiona Kenshaw. I was drawing these very boring static illustrations, as we all were at the time, because of the technology, the old letterpress technology. And, you know, all the computer stuff was just coming in and type was starting to move about on the page. And she had this vision of you know the way books could be and the way illustration could just not be just a static picture you know a square and and eventually she kind of explained it to she said you know be like those hollywood cameras on the end of a crane she said you know you can move up and down and look from every angle and go around the back you can do anything you like. You don't have to just sit at the front and, and draw what might be there. That was just a mind-blowing thing. And I went home and I kind of looked back at Rupert Bear, I remember, and realised that uh, Bestel, uh, I can't remember his first name, and who the, art, the second artist 
on Rupert Bear. And he just had that absolutely to a T. And it was very sort of cinematographic, I suppose. I think that's probably where I, I, I come from because illustrators are storytellers. And so we tell stories with pictures. And my generation, then we've been brought up with film and stuff. And Tintin, that's another one. Tintin and all those sort of bon Désignée kind of books. Hergé just drew little movies. You know, they're, they're just perfect storyboards for movies. And so I suppose I got that into me from somewhere as well. I think it, I don't know, kind of, you know, somewhere I instinctively understood that sort of moving from one image to another and, and creating a story. But I never wanted to do cartoons. I never wanted to do strip cartoons. I love that idea of illustrators being storytellers, which of course they are. And I wonder if you could say something, Shu, about how you then approach, because I guess in illustrating someone else's uh, story and in, in writing your own and you do both, it's sort of either a singular endeavour or a, as a storyteller or, or a collaboration. I wonder how you approach the two differently. In a way, it isn't a collaboration <laughs> because publishers kind of like to keep illustrators and authors apart. Uh, once they do get together and collaborate, they get all arty. Publishers watch something commercial. <laughs> so quite often you're, you know, you're given a story and you never actually meet the author you know, until years later. There's a few books I've done. I've never actually met the author. And I don't know, I, I, I did a, a series with Michael Morpurgo a long, long time ago called Mud Puddle Farm. He's a great writer, you know, and, and, and this isn't his normal kind of thing. And he'd written this funny little story and, and my editor said, you know, can, do you think you can make this funny? <laughs> it was quite a sad little story about, about a cat on a farm who was, he was old and he was going to lose his job, basically. So I kind of added all sorts of stuff and I was I was just given this incredible freedom. And again, it was at this time when the uh, everything was becoming loosened, you know, because of computer layout for, for publishing. Basically, they gave me his text on a great long roll of paper and I had to cut it up with scissors and stick it down with glue. In cutting up Michael Morpogo's text, I, I was kind of editing his thing as I went along and sort of analysing each sentence almost. And I just had this extraordinary moment where there, there was one little paragraph where uh, there was a mouse kind of ran across the, the farmyard into the barn, stole some corn, ran back across the farmyard and went back home again. And I had this sort of lightning bulb went up on my head and I thought, this is a story. This is a complete little story. It has a beginning and a middle and an end in one paragraph. And, oh, my God, that's what my teachers used to tell me, about beginning and middle and end. And I looked at the whole story and I realised every character had their own beginnings and middles and ends. And he wound and wove all these stories together in one big you know, beginning, middle and end. And it was just like, oh, that's how you do it. So Michael Mulbergo taught me to write. And, you know, when I was at school, I, uh, my O-levels, which I'm not quite sure what they are in Scotland, but, uh, you know, when you're 16. Well, I, I failed my English O-levels three times <laughs> and eventually just scraped a pass. So I was really the, you know, the boy most unlikely to become an author at school, really. <laughs> And, and it was kind of through illustration I got there, you know. I mean, I think that, that raises a really a really interesting point, though, about it strikes me anyway that illustrators have a have a really special responsibility to, to reluctant, more reluctant readers. Is that something you feel maybe as someone who, who had that relationship with words yourself that maybe, yeah, is it is a kind of unique position to have? Because often it's the illustrations that tell the story for lots of people, whether they have a slightly more challenging time with words or otherwise. I, I, I did quite a lot of um, illustration with Rose Impey as well, who'd been a teacher, and she was very hot on keeping high interest and simple language to catch those reluctant readers. And I kind of learned that trick off her, I think. 
as I write those kind of books, I'm I'm almost counting the words of each paragraph because all oh, this paragraph's getting too long, and oh, you know, this this sentence is getting too long. I've got to find a way to cut it in half or something like that. Oh, that word's a bit too tricky. <laughs> and it's it's not just writing the story; it, it's kind of writing with a struggling reader in mind. I think as well. Tell us, you then. You've you've touched on the idea that your, your studio and and the, the your YouTube channels, uh, shoe in or drawing and draw stuff real easy. Can you tell us how those channels came about? I was in a school, showing them how to draw one of my characters, and then the bell went at the end of class, and they all went. Oh. They they had a um, a whiteboard, you know. So it's one of the earlyish whiteboards and I said that is that connected to the internet and they said yes it is so I said I'll see if I can put this up you know finish it off on YouTube and you know see what happens so that's how it started and I thought oh this is quite fun so I started doing a few more and then nobody watched anything and I thought you know this is going to be brilliant everyone will want to draw my characters and nobody did Um, And then about a year later, I got maybe a thousand views that somebody left a comment saying, can you show us how to draw a lion or a penguin or something? So I thought, oh, all right. And I did that. And then I started getting views and it just kind of grew and grew and grew. And yeah, that's where I am now, really. It's just it's kind of you know doing either what people request or, or, or what I think they might like. And now it's it's an it's enormous, isn't it? I mean, it's just such a it's a big and busy, <laughs> busy old channel, isn't it? Yeah. And it's it's, it's changed. It's not, you know, the whole business has changed over the years, the business of YouTube. I won a, a, a competition with them in 2011. It was a, a Huge competition for YouTubers. Spent a week with them up in London and sort of 25 other European YouTubers. They had a fantastic time. And I think they just taught us too much. And I, I think uh, if I'd have just carried on what I was doing before that, I'd probably be a lot further than I am. I just, they taught us to be too clever, I think. <laughs> and I know that, I believe at the start of lockdown, you you were interviewing some uh, some other names who will be familiar to, to those Wigtown. Um, uh, how, how was that? How did, how did that come about, interviewing the likes of Viv French? Well, you know, I, I think it was kind of the morning after... Boris did his lockdown speech. It, it was a weird time, wasn't it? And it was like almost like the end of the world, or you know, the war was starting or something. And I think I had a kind of a, a restless night. I remember I had a few restless nights around about then. And I sort of woke up in the middle of the night and thought, I've got to do something. And I thought, oh, all these poor kids, they're not going to school. I've got to do something, you know. And and so the next day, I just sort of manically started thinking, right, I, I, I can do this live every day and just all a bit manic and you just can't keep it up. And then, you know, within a week, the whole world was doing exactly the same thing. <laughs> and uh, I thought, maybe I don't need to do it every day. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe I can let, um, you know, sort of ha- have another think about this, I thought. And, and then I also sort of had quite a lot of illustration work to do. So, um, you know, it was... It was kind of hard to keep it up. I've I've loved that impulse that's come out of lockdown, though the kind of putting on a show from wherever you are and and get, you know communicating still and engaging with people. It's been it's been really quite quite inspirational. Yeah, I mean, there's just been this sort of massive amount of content just sort of pouring onto the internet, hasn't there? Tell tell me this then. I do want to ask you. You know, this idea: can anyone draw? Can everyone draw? I I said that I can't. Um, how would you? What would you say to me then? How should I get on that? get better well i i i think everyone can draw and it, and if you look back to you know when you were a kid i bet you you know when 
teacher said, you know, oh, okay, you can, you, you know, we can draw for the rest of the class. Everyone would go, yay! And and everyone was very happy to do that. And you, I don't know, you might have drawn fashion or boys have a habit of drawing <laughs> war and stuff like that. And then and then they all sort of quite happy drawing away. And then something happens around 11 to 13 and you start looking at your, at your neighbour and go, oh, they're good. And you start looking at Picasso thinking, oh, wow, he's really good. <laughs> and you start comparing yourself. And to be able to get to be a Picasso, you have to draw every day. And, you know, to be Picasso, I think, you know, you do need that extra special spark. But to be able to draw, I think that is a skill that can be taught and can be learned. And part of the problem is that we now think, oh, you mustn't teach it because you're going to spoil people's style. I, I don't know what it is that, uh, you know, that it, there's this feeling that it, drawing mustn't be taught. And when I go to schools, you know, I love it, particularly, you know, even in nursery with four, four or five-year-olds, and I'm showing them how to draw something. And I always get the same reaction from teachers, and they walk around looking absolutely amazed, and they say, isn't this incredible? These children are taking instruction. And I think, well, what? <laughs> Isn't that the whole point? <laughs> and and I think somehow we assume that you should know how to draw instinctively. And we do. We know how to make marks. We know how to drag a pencil across a piece of paper. But we don't know, you know how to draw an aeroplane. We don't know how to draw a, a building. We need to be shown. And, and then once you know that, you kind of get the trick. It's like bikes, riding a bike. Once you've learned the trick, you can do it, and then you can go and sort of go off on your own after that. Do it some more. I mean, I think there's, there's. Well, I know there's a lot of um, a lot of small people of Wigtown who've been through the the shoe rainer, um, school of drawing. Tell us, tell us how you're. I think the people listening to the podcast, some have been to Wigtown, some are local to Wigtown, but but some have never been. And I just wonder how you got how you got involved with the festival. Well, I, I just got an email one day saying, you know, we li- we're in the back of beyond, you know, you might not want to come this far, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, you know, oh, all right. And so I kind of went and I, I didn't get it the first time. I didn't understand it. But then I was asked back. So I came up with this wheeze of doing the um, the Wigtown sketchbook, <laughs> suggested it uh, and sort of said, oh, that's a good idea. And so I ended up sort of, spent the whole 10 days having the most fantastic time just talking to the most incredible people meeting people and sort of being part of the whole thing and I kind of for the first time I kind of understood what you know what went on at a book festival because as an author you just turn up and people push you here and push you there and they take you back to the station you don't really see that kind of stuff going on and and I just fell in love with the whole thing you know so I'd be quite happy to come back every year and just sit and sketch (laughs) and there's such a wide range of things going on and such a, a sort of a great bunch of people of all sorts of types and you know it's just wonderful especially the you know being in the author room you know you kind of hang out and sort of meet meet some really really interesting people and quite quite often we're watching the telly I'm like, oh yeah yeah i'm at, I'm at wigtown yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, Shu, my, my final question is simply: What are you working on in your studio right now? Well, I have just finished and sent off my first draft of my second Walker, the boy who can talk to dogs book. So it's a follow-on from the first one. And then right now, 
I have got this little opportunity where I'm going to write a book for grown-ups and um, I, I'm going to publish it myself, which is probably silly, but I'm, I'm going to learning all about digital marketing and all that kind of stuff. So I'm going to sort of really, really go for it this time. I've got this little window of opportunity and I'm going to really do it. Yeah. A new book by Shoe Raider is certainly something to look forward to. Thank you, Shoe, And do check out his wonderful YouTube channels. Anyone can draw, um, as you will soon find out. There's certainly a much needed breath of fresh air. Talking of illustration, the new literary magazine Extra Teeth has a guest illustrator for each of its editions. Heather Parry and Jules Danskin joined us to talk about their COVID-delayed second edition and to tell us why they started the magazine in the first place. How very exciting to be joined on the Wigtown Book Festival podcast by Heather Parry and Jules Danskin, the dream duo who make up, among many other vivid, lively, amazing projects, Extra Teeth. Jules, where are you? I'm in rainy, grey Leith in Edinburgh. And Heather, where are you? I'm coming from the equally grey and rainy south side of Glasgow. So we're, we're talking kind of, a, you know, just ahead of the publication of um, very exciting and slightly COVID-delayed publication of issue two. But I wanted to take us all back to the very beginning and not the beginning of the magazine, which I'm also interested in, but really for you both as keen readers, what magazines have meant to you now as adults and maybe growing up. So Jules, can you talk to us about what magazines have meant to you? Probably the the first magazine that really meant a lot to me was the Animals of Farthing Wood magazine that came with a little free gift. It was a Wednesday tradition that I would go down to the post office in Brotty Ferry with my dad and we would pick up a magazine and then go for a Ribena and a gingerbread man. So I think that's probably where the seeds of Extra Teeth began, really. In terms of literary magazines, I've always really loved Stinging Fly, which is based in Dublin. I think that's been a real inspiration point. And aside from that, I think as a bookseller, I also stocked an awful lot of magazines. And I've just been really fascinated to see over the years how magazines have really developed from this quite commercial glossy affair to being really quite weird and wonderful and there's such a great scene up here in Scotland especially now there's some amazing literary magazines like Bloodbath and Marbles and Counterpoint. Gusser magazine is obviously brilliant, I've read that for years so magazines I think are just such a great way to discover new writing so it feels really exciting to be contributing to that. And Heather what about you and magazines? I come to this from a slightly different position to Jules in that as a short story writer I've really relied on a lot of literary magazines to get my work out there and it's funny Jules mentions this thing in Fly as they were I think the second magazine I ever got published in and that for me as a young writer was such an amazing publication to get in and they were so helpful and like it, it really nourished me the whole process. The issue I was in was actually guest edited by Mia Gallagher. It really sort of put a love for that kind of literary magazine inside of me you know how much they can sort of contribute to the community how much of a difference they can make to young writers and that's something we really wanted to bring to extra teeth as well i'm a huge fan of sting and fly as well and met declan mead who was the then i think it was the founder editor but was then editor as well with mia gallagher because we knew we, we had mia gallagher at this little festival years ago and then met up with her in dublin and she was like oh come and meet declan and he gave us a copy of kevin barry's book and of course we had kevin on the podcast a couple of weeks ago so it's a lovely small world so can you guys remember what it was that was the impetus then for Extra Teeth? Like, what was the conversation where you guys, coming from your different spaces, thought, you know, let's just set up a, a new one? 
But I think the, the impetus for it really came just from seeing all these amazing magazines that were coming together and how vibrant the Scottish literary scene is already. But also thinking there's a gap in the market here for bringing something that celebrates design and fiction and essays all together, working with artists as well as writers, something that celebrates diversity and just slightly weird experiment, not necessarily specific to one genre. I think I've already mentioned Bloodbath, which is fantastic weird fiction in the sort of horror genre sense. And then there's Malfaction magazine, which is a very recent one that focuses on crime. So something that kind of spanned genre and quite sort of niche topics and essays, but really broad, slightly experimental fiction, which is something that Heather and I think both read a lot of, and Heather certainly writes herself. And Heather and I have quite interesting sort of Venn diagram of tastes, but I think we have we look for the same things, whether we're reading fiction or non-fiction, we look for that quality, we look for someone trying to do something slightly different. So it just felt, I don't know, I don't know how you feel about it, Heather, but it felt to me like it just kind of started running under its own steam, I suppose. It was actually Jules's idea. And I think you sold it to me as a space that really celebrates the exciting, bold voices in Scotland and beyond, and then takes in brilliant design. And also, I really loved the idea of having a guest illustrator every issue who would be allowed the kind of free reign to decide how the issue looks and also to respond to the stories, which I thought was like a really interesting concept. And the way we do it on the magazine is that we don't have a theme for every issue. We really don't want to constrain anyone's imagination. And I also, as a writer, I can't write to a prompt at all. I I can't write to a theme even. (laughs) So I really wanted to create something where people could just send us their best, boldest, weirdest work. And then we could curate that, make it as, as strong as we could, and then send it to the illustrator who could then respond to it in whatever way they saw fit. So we don't tell our illustrators that they have to do a specific illustration for every story. We don't tell them that they have to select the themes that are coming through in the story and illustrate around those. So we've had really interesting responses so far. Our issue one illustrator was the brilliant Maria Stoyan, and she really pulled out a strange amount of meat through all the stories and essays of issue one. And she illustrated very literally, whereas um, our issue two illustrator, David Lem, he's done it very differently. He works in this beautiful sort of highly conceptual, minimal style. And he has conceptualized every story and then worked to that. It's been an incredible process to watch and be a part of, really. Issue one is right before me. And, you know, the, the words here, you know, the kind of the belief system for the magazine is fierce fiction, you know, bold, extra teeth, you know, bite and so on. You clearly look for those things in the work that you enjoy. So maybe if you could speak to us about a couple of the pieces in issue one as we then segue towards issue two, which obviously is what we're, we want to talk about as well. I guess issue one is a slight anomaly for what will hopefully be a long history of extra teeth. Because we basically we said we can only do this if we raise money through a Kickstarter. So we commissioned every piece in issue one, which was quite a different process to when we put together issue two, which was submission based. But I think in terms of putting the first issue together, Heather and I compiled a list of our dream authors, included some of my favourite writers from even from high school in the case of Janice Galloway. And we were just incredibly lucky because everyone that we approached 
said yes it was phenomenal and I think the first person we approached was Martin McInnes. Martin is a writer whose work both Heather and I we were just like yeah we have to have him he's just fantastic and one of my favourite things about the first issue and I hope will continue with future issues is that every time someone approaches us about the magazine they tell us that they all have different favourites which I think is you know there's not like one or two sort of standouts that people really really like there's also like everyone's it seems to be across the board which I think is a really good sign and I also love um, Sheena Khalil's story about um, an evening with Riz Ahmed, which I think is one of the gentler stories. There's some quite rough stories in, in issue one, but there's something gentle and wry and sweet, um, but also kind of melancholy about Sheena's story. So I really love the mixture of tones. And then into the essays, we have Carolina Orloff's amazing, almost manifesto about translated fiction, translated literature, not as something that you can put on a table in a bookshop as this kind of niche subject, but something that is transgressive and rebellious at its heart. Sort of shifting our gaze then towards issue two, what would have happened if it hadn't been for COVID? Because of course, most of us, all plans on hold. Where are things with issue two and what's likely to happen now? Well, we were supposed to release issue two at the end of May. So our process for every issue is about six months. So we have a a month-long submissions window and we were amazed to receive like over 500 submissions for issue two. So we take about a month to go over those and then we spend a couple of weeks kind of, you know, hashing out between us our long lists and getting that down to a final list of 12. Um, And then that gives us a bit of time to go back and forth with the the writers and go through the editing process. Um, And then what we do is we give our illustrator at least a month to go through their own process you know, conceptualize, figure out how they want to work with our brilliant designer, Esther, who's amazing. You know, then you have to leave time for the publication and all these kind of things. Um, And then lockdown happened. At that point, obviously, all the businesses closed down and we just knew we weren't going to rush into publishing the magazine when we might be putting people at risk. We didn't want anyone to be at the printers when they really didn't have to be. So yeah, we should have released at the end of March, but it's given us a lot of more time to kind of finalize everything. And, you know, it's given our illustrators more time, which I think has been nice. Currently, we're looking at releasing at the end of August, which is very exciting for us. Jules, what treats are in store then? Are you allowed to give us some spoilers? Yeah, certainly. So as Heather already mentioned, we had over 500 submissions. So whittling it down was incredibly difficult. But I think we have ended up with a really amazing issue illustrated by David Lem. We've been teasing some of his illustrations that will be setting aside some of the work. We've been really fortunate to work with a small indie press as well, which is something we're really interested to do going forwards. We worked with Comma Press, who are based in Manchester. Heather and I both really love the work of Nehru's Karmut. We were able to choose from the, the Comma collection, the Sea Cloak, whatever story we wanted to publish. Um, and we would pay her as we do all of the authors and the illustrator, of course. I can't wait for people to be able to read that in the magazine. There are so many stories. I'm really excited for people to read the new upcoming writer based in, in Edinburgh, Hidden Ink Child, whose story, The Flat, is claustrophobic and creepy and gets really under your skin. I think there's a real mix, as we had with issue one, of emerging writers as much as there are um, more established names like the wonderful Jan Carson. We're huge fans of Jan. But like Joel said, the whole list has just been incredible. We've got Ishikaki, who has seemingly won every short story prize available for this year. She's really having a brilliant 2020. We've got three brilliant essays. We've got the brilliant Rosie Garland. Sort of like brilliant jack-of-all-trades 
for all kind of writing and performing. She does everything. And she's written for us a, a really beautiful, it plays with the form so much. And we love that. And then we've got one from Kirsten Smith, who runs Marbles Mag on uh, mental health and art and music. It brings in, you know, so many different things. I, I'm really glad that we got um, a submission from Jamie Redgate on one of my favorite books, actually, um, Geek Love by Catherine Dunn. He's writing about the kind of the meat is the message, you know, the body as a form of literature. And that just ticks all of my boxes. So I'm really glad we've got that one too. We actually, um, as soon as we decided that we couldn't go ahead with issue two as planned, obviously we felt pretty devastated because we were so excited to bring this issue to people. So we did this, um, it's up on our Instagram and you can still view them all. From both issue one and two, many of our writers sent in submissions of themselves reading from their pieces, either in issue one or issue two, which was a really nice way to still feel like we were making something, like we were putting something together even when we couldn't. So if people fancy a wee sneak peek, then I would definitely recommend checking out our Instagram. Now, my final question, and Jules, I apologise, I don't know, have you been to Wigtown? I never have, you know, which you haven't yet. Pleasure deferred. Heather, you have been to Wigtown. Oh, well, it was actually my first time there last year. um, And I was really privileged to chair some events, one of whom actually was everyone's favourite, Jan Carson. And it was such an honour to talk to her about her book, um, The Firestarters, which I have to say, if you haven't read it, it's truly brilliant. I mean, she's, she's a real genius. You know, when you see someone just being brilliant it really sort of shines a light on us and in that tent everyone was just they couldn't like get enough of what Jan was saying it really is truly a joy to be part of that kind of event it's such a a beautiful little microcosm isn't it of the Scottish literature community I made so many friends that weekend just sort of like having a pizza and a glass of wine and getting chatting to some of the locals and some of the people who've come you know for decades I think to Wigton. And that is a very fine place to draw to a close with my final question which is are there virtual event plans for this very special issue too? Yes definitely we're um, cooking things up we're quite keen on um, I've been experimenting a little bit with Instagram live which I think is a really good way for bookshops and publishers and authors to mingle with each other so we're thinking about how we might be able to do something like that possibly have one of our authors be interviewed by another one maybe some conversations between us about the production process as well I mean maybe some people aren't interested in that but I think a lot of people are quite interested in how we get to the final product zoom events as well can work really nicely but um, I think for extra teeth because we quite like the the sort of the short, sharp, in-depth discussions. Um, I think maybe Instagram Live, that will be the, the way to go for us. But watch this space, we'll be making announcements soon. Thank you to Heather and to Jules. Keep an eye out for that second edition coming out at the end of August. It just sounds like it's packed with absolute brilliance and definitely worth the wait. Well, that's us for another episode. Thank you so much to Shu and to Heather and to Jules for their marvellous chat and thank you to you for joining us. We hope to catch you next time but in the meanwhile take very good care of yourselves and bye bye for now.